Two and a Half Admins, episode 64. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And before we get started, your blog post plug, Alan, is looking towards the future, FreeBSD on RISC-V. So this is a more technical post about what's actually involved in porting FreeBSD to RISC-V and why you would care about supporting a new architecture on FreeBSD and so on, and what the, the future will bring out of that. Well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then, and a huge story in the tech world over the last couple of weeks is Meta. The company, Facebook, has rebranded to Meta, and now they're going to go all in on the Metaverse. Yay, second life for business. We've all been waiting for it. Well, that was my first reaction was like, ah, VR, I'm just not interested. But then I kind of researched it a bit more, and I've come to the conclusion that this is going to happen, and it is going to be big. Well, sure. I mean, stupid things happen every day. Yeah. It doesn't make them great. (laughs) I've known the concept of smart glasses and a bunch of these things were coming and some of it I maybe even was somewhat interested in. But I really don't think I want it to be from Facebook. Yeah. Also, I just so much of this metaverse stuff really does boil down to second life for business. Like augmented reality where like you've got smart glasses on and you're looking at, you know, a, a pump fitting and like a serial number pops up in your upper left and, you know, instructions on removing it. And like, you know, it draws circles around bolts and the order that you should tension them. Right? All that is great, but that's not really what Facebook is pitching with the metaverse. I mean, Facebook is pitching, hey, we're all going to have a meeting, but instead of a Zoom call, we're all going to be cartoons. <laughs> great. <laughs> I got to play with one of those features like that in, in Skype recently, where it like grabs everybody's heads and puts them in like a gallery of people or something instead of just the grid of boxes like you get with a normal Zoom call or whatever. And I'm like, this is just goofy. Why are we doing this? (laughs) What was the thing on Facebook that everybody was big into like four or five years ago? Was it Bitmoji, I think? All of a sudden, everybody had like the little custom cartoon, you know, face for themselves. And Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's that crap all over again. Or, you know, before that, you know, it was the like, build your own Simpsons character that looks like you. I just, I'm not seeing it. I don't see it as a good replacement for, you know, like a traditional teleconference call. It's not giving you any additional information and it's not really shielding you meaningfully from the unpleasant aspects of direct interpersonal communication that, you know, you might potentially want to in business. Like I can see the idea that like maybe I'm a woman and I don't want to get like lecched on by my male coworkers, but I don't think... Being a cute cartoon instead is really going to cut down on that much. much. I don't expect. And it's just, there's so much of it. It's like, you know, I see they're trying to push like exercise and a bunch of other stuff. And it's like, I just don't think I want Facebook controlling or having all the data on my exercise. Because I know that the point of it is to make money off of it and not to help me exercise. But isn't it possible that someone else will come along and sort of take the market out from underneath Facebook or Meta as they now are? I think that's what Gemini's point a bit was, you know, a bunch of these pieces of the metaverse are interesting and some of them I'm, I would even be interested in. I just don't want it to be Facebook. I hadn't even really touched on the whether I want it to be Facebook. Of course, I don't want it to be Facebook. Facebook is horrible. And if it wasn't the only way to keep in touch with the vast majority of the muggles in my life, I would be off that thing so fast everybody's head would spin. But even above and beyond that, Facebook's vision for, you know, the metaverse it's just not compelling. It's nerfed. It misses the point. It, it's kind of uh, 
back in the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, we used to joke all the time about uh, just horrible, soulless corporate versions of things. And that's kind of what Facebook is doing with alternate reality, really. It's like, let's tick all the boxes to make it a feature and try to do all the things we can to make sure that everybody has to use this thing. But fuck making it compelling. <laughs> yeah, the idea behind the the metaverse was there would be something you would want to do, not something you would be dragged into kicking and streaming. But isn't it a case that normally these things start in the enterprise space, and then people get used to that idea of using it at work, and then somehow that spills out into their personal life? No, it usually works the other way around. Uh, stuff that starts out in the corporate space is usually meat on the chopping block from when something rises up from the ranks of home users. I mean, you look at mainframes getting replaced by microcomputers. Uh, microcomputers, when they first began dominating the workplace, were ridiculously underpowered, unreliable pieces of crap compared to you know traditional, well-established mainframe and dumb terminal systems. They took over in part because of low prices, but the prices weren't that low either. Like if you ever priced an actual original IBM PC or clone back in the day, I mean, they cost as much as a car, man. The reason they took over is because when it gets to the point where everybody has one at home, they expect that thing or better at work. And if you don't have that thing or better at work, they're going to bring in the stuff from home with them. Whether it's a good idea or not, they're going to do it. The example you had of, of Second Life, it's like, you know, it was just a game and then, you know, companies started trying to have press conferences in Second Life. But now some musical artists do concerts in um, things like Fortnite and you have announcements and stuff in there. And that, okay, it's not quite the same thing as we're talking about with Facebook, but it's along the same lines, isn't it? In my opinion, no, it's just bog standard, stupid promotional crap. You know, it's it's like when you would get the little disposable uh, you remember you get disposable little uh, records like in your cereal in the 80s and 90s sometimes? Yeah. Or like, you know, everybody's got the latest U2 album on their iPhone. Great. Yeah, that was <laughs> it was a thing that promoted a thing, but that doesn't mean it's going to be how things are done from now on. So you don't think this is going to take off long term then? You don't think in 10 years it's going to be standard practice? I don't think Facebook's vision of it will. I think some form of alternate reality Augmented reality specifically is absolutely going to be a thing, but Facebook's specific vision of it right now strikes me as empty, hollow, and, you know, it's it's just a dead product walking. How can Zuckerberg be this wrong about it when he's been so right about other stuff? Like Facebook, hate it or really fucking hate it, it's massively successful. The guy knows what he's doing. It's massively successful because, you know, he managed to get enough of a, a, a market advantage to to get lock-in. That's the only thing that keeps anybody on Facebook is lock-in. Nobody is like, I love Facebook. Like, this is super where I want to be. Even the muggles that the tech folks, like, we're reluctantly still there because we don't want to lose track of all the non-technical people in our life. But those non-technical people don't love Facebook either. They're just even less willing to change from one platform to another. So there it is. Now, Facebook can figure out some way to lock people into the metaverse, you know, the way that they did into a traditional social media platform, then sure. But I don't see how they're going to do that. Not just one, but two. They got the younger people with Instagram. And granted, they bought that, but that was smart thinking to buy that, wasn't it? Instagram is nowhere near as much of a lock-in, in my opinion. Um, it's not as social as Facebook. It's a lot more... 
I don't know, can I say star fucking on 2.5 admins? Like, you know, it's <laughs> it's more people following influencers and, you know, sometimes it's like local influencers. Maybe it's somebody they know, but like you're not really keeping up with grandma on Instagram. I think it would be a lot easier for another service to come along and eat Instagram's lunch than eat Facebook proper's lunch. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. So last week we talked about Intel's Alder Lake CPUs, but you hadn't benchmarked them yet, Jim. Now you have, and it turns out they're very fast and use a lot of power. Yeah, the, uh, the, the performance Alder Lake delivers, period. There's no way around it. At the value performance level, Core i5, Ryzen 5, etc., they absolutely dominate, and there's really no downside. All the way up at the top end of the food chain, you know, with Core i9 versus like Ryzen 9 5950, i9 12900K is basically about an even match with Ryzen 9 5950 on most things performance-wise. Unfortunately, it drinks about double the power to do it. And I, th- I think the reason for that is just that uh, Intel, they, they badly needed an across-the-board win, right? And although it's kind of dumb to overtune a particular chip like the i9 way out into the absolutely no efficiency side of the curve because you get very little performance in doing so, I think it was worth it to Intel to make arguably a crappier chip, but get the performance wins across all levels rather than just be like, oh, i5 is a great deal, but... Uh, Ryzen 9 still beats the crap out of an i9. Yeah, it's not like there was just a huge climate conference on talking about how to uh, reduce energy usage or anything. No, nothing like that. And what does that matter when you got to sell units? Because it's not just about the power usage in the environment. It's about cooling the bloody thing. Well, again, you know, this, this is really only an issue for the core i9 specifically. The i5 is more efficient, slightly, performance per watt than uh, Ryzen 5 is. And uh, it's considerably more power efficient than Ryzen 7, which it actually competes strongly with on performance. It's really just the core i9, which nobody really buys a whole lot of i9s. You know, that's more of a dream chip. It's the marketing thing, which is, again, why it totally made sense to make a crappy version of it that would turn your office into an oven, but win the benchmark war. Because for the most part, the purpose of the i9 is not to sell i9s. The purpose of the i9 is to make people dream of i9s and buy i5s and i7s. They're basically the hypercars, right? They're, we're only going to make and sell 100 of these, but it's, it's going to make our brand prestigious and we'll be able to sell the regular cars or, you know, just 
swag. Yeah, I mean, it's not as ridiculous as like a Bugatti, but it's worth pointing out that we're already seeing people doing things like that Core i9 12900K is what people are, you know, doing liquid nitrogen cooling to try to get it up to eight gigahertz on. Like that's the chip you do that with. So what about the big little stuff? How did that work out with the benchmarks? For the benchmarks, it's not that complicated. The thing that people get wrong about Big Little is they think it's just about conserving power, and it's not. If you have a massively multi-threaded workload like Cinebench or anything else that will run on as many threads as you can cram on it, you get the highest performance not out of the P cores, but out of the E cores. It's not because the efficiency cores magically perform better per core than the performance cores do. It's because you can cram more of them onto the same die space and in the same thermal budget as a smaller number of P cores. And when you have the smaller number of P cores versus a much larger number of E cores running the same massively multi-threaded workload, more little cores wins every time. Yeah, and like even if the, the P cores have a higher clock rate, two E cores is still going to be better even if they're only at, you know, 1.8 gigahertz than even just one of the other cores that's at three gigahertz. Especially for servers, I would be very interested to see what combinations they offer because I'm expecting to have some of them be very, very few P-cores and just massive numbers of E-cores. The question is for the servers, if you want the P-cores at all, or you just want E-cores. It's like when you look at Alder Lake, the E-cores are quite performant. I mean, I think it was a little more performant than Skylake. So the only time you actually want P-cores at all is for, you know, single thread bottleneck workloads. And you don't have that many of those on a typical server. If you do have one, then usually it's going to be a case of like, well, I want this absolute highest performance for the absolute lowest latency for this single-threaded workload. Oh, and I have 20 of these individual single-threaded workloads. And in that case, you're going to want a server CPU that's all P-cores, not a mix of P-cores and E-cores. But typically, you just want all E-cores for everything because when you're talking about server workloads, you're usually not looking at needing the absolute lowest latency possible because you've got bigger latency, you know, introduced on the network side. And also because, again, your biggest concern is like, I need as much multi-tenancy as I can possibly get on this hardware because I'm going to be oversubscribed on my number of threads anyway. So when that's the case, you want all E-cores. And that's why, like, you know, you look at the the Graviton and Ampere and, you know, all these new massively multi-core ARM CPUs, it's all E-cores on those things for exactly that reason. You you put one P-core in and you have to take out four E-cores, and that's just not going to be a win for many workloads. On the desktop, you want the mix because you genuinely do very frequently have one right in the user's face, extremely latency sensitive, single thread bound workload, and you want that to run on a P core. But everything else, E cores, baby. Alan, you recently took part in the OpenZFS Developer Summit, and we actually had a question from Bryce that relates to this. Do any of you know the state of ZFS on Windows? Do you believe it will ever reach the same state as on FreeBSD and Linux? My understanding is this came up at the uh, summit. Uh, a little bit. So the original project to get OpenZFS on Windows was called ZFS In, and that went so far, and some companies have picked up to that, and I'll get back to that in a second. And then there's the newer project uh, by the same people, but it's basically getting it back perfectly in line with upstream OpenZFS to the point that once it catches up, it will probably merge into the upstream repo and be like currently OpenZFS 2.0 and 2.1. The same repo builds on Linux and FreeBSD. 
And before too long, Mac will be in there in the official repo. And then once Jorgen's done with that, he plans to do the same for Windows. So currently, feature-wise, OpenZFS for Windows is as up-to-date as what you would get on Ubuntu, or actually might actually be more up-to-date than what you get on Ubuntu, and about the same as you would get in FreeBSD. Now, performance and stability, there's still quite a bit of work to be done, and that was one of the presentations at the OpenZFS Dev Summit, was a company called Datacore that's been working with a slightly older version called ZFS in on Windows, but they've done the work to like hook it up to the Windows performance monitor so that you actually can get graphs of the reads and writes and so on in the, the same Windows tools you would use for anything else, and a bunch of other work to just make it integrate with Windows better and to increase the performance. And they got as much as you know uh, 200% performance increases uh, with some of the changes they made mostly because they were having pathologies that were making it really slow and they've solved that. But it's uh, they have some benchmarks comparing where they are versus Linux, and those numbers will only get better as they get caught up to the what is the master branch on OpenZFS. So it's definitely to the point where you can use it and it won't crash your machine, but performance-wise, it'll still have a little ways to go before it's as fast as Linux or BSD. Functional but rough is about how I would currently characterize it. It's... Yeah. Um, I would compare it to like, you know, the uh, the EXT4 ports for Windows or uh, probably not quite as good as the, the current state of NTFS on Linux. Yeah, I would agree with that. It works and you can use it, but it's not going to be as polished as, as you're used to. But it's ZFS, so it's, it's not going to eat your data and it is quite stable now. All right. Any other highlights then? Uh, yeah, there were a bunch of interesting bits. One of the biggest ones was the people from Delphix uh, did two different presentations on their concept to be able to have a new VDEV type that's actually backed by S3 buckets. Uh, so this is basically a ZFS pool backed by an object store, meaning that the pool doesn't really have a set size. Just, as you allocate space, it will store more and more objects in the S3 bucket. And then as you delete stuff, it will trim it out. Although there's inefficiencies when you delete stuff uh, because it's the objects it's making S3 are larger, like one megabyte each. And so if you only delete a fraction of the, the 4K blocks in a one megabyte chunk, then you're still paying for the whole one megabyte chunk. But there's a lot of really interesting work and they're doing a bunch of it in Rust, which is also just technically interesting as well. And one of the other interesting things about that is when you talk about using S3 buckets as storage, Yes, you can use S3 buckets, but typically you can also do self-hosted stuff like, you know, MinIO. Like you're not necessarily married to actual Amazon, which nobody talks about. So I really want to because I don't love Amazon a whole lot more than I love Facebook. Yeah, but uh, in particular, they did mention that uh, it's just the S3 API. And so a bunch of other cloud providers have S3 compatible APIs or and they specifically talked about MinIO, which they've been using for some of the testing because you know, they happen to have their own storage. And for testing, why pay a lot of money to Amazon to store these blocks? And a lot of the second talk uh, for a feature called Zetacache was about how to deal with the fact that while the object store is very fast, it does have high latency, right? If you're doing an HTTP GET request for every 4K block, it's going to suck. And so they do these one meg blocks, but even then it's like, we need to be able to cache but we're talking about having caches on the order of like 50 terabytes of cache for like a, you know, a multi-petabyte pool. The L2 arc is not efficient enough. You know, at 96 bytes of memory per block, doing a terabyte of data requires something like 26 gigs of RAM. 
for every terabyte of storage, and that's just not going to work for the the cache. And so they built a a much more efficient cache. Although, as we talked about at the Dev Summit, that only works because you can get rid of some of the constraints by making this a cache that's kind of outside of ZFS. Any other highlights? There's a, a couple other talks that were really good. Uh, send and receive performance and uh, logical quotas, being able to charge your users for the actual size of the files, not just the compressed size. And then on the second day, we had the hackathon. I uh, worked on a bunch of different projects, uh, including Pavel Dodek has a per-file cloning prototype, and we worked on that and got it further along. Is it just me or do logical quotas just kind of sound like a dick move? Like, yeah, this only took one gig on disk, but I'm going to go ahead and charge it for 1.5. Yes, but it solves a different problem. If you're, you were near your quota and you wrote a bunch of files and then you modify a file and now the modified version doesn't compress as well, you've hit your quota even though you've not added any more data. And the user is like, what the hell? Users are always like, what the hell? You can't fix that. Yeah, <laughs> right. But you can, you can make it more deterministic by doing it based on the logical size. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support for details. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions or feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. One of the other perks of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is exactly what Francis has done. Francis said, I have a couple of issues that I'm struggling with. I'm a small IT business that provides ad hoc IT support to other small businesses. Most of my clients are tiny or not-for-profits, so my margins are, well, marginal. I've been getting busier and busier, and now I face two issues that I'm really struggling with. So let's do these one at a time, I think. The first one, managing SSH keys. How do I keep track of my employees' SSH keys? When someone leaves or loses their machine, I don't want to have to log into every server they access and revoke a key. Is there a way around this? SSH has the concept of SSH certificates as opposed to keys. And so you can make your central certificate authority issue keys to people and be able to centrally revoke them and manage those. And that can work nicer. It can depend a bit on how you're using the keys or where you're using them. You know, if if you're giving keys to a customer to like public keys to a customer to install on their machine in the authorized keys or whatever, it can get a little trickier to do the certificate stuff. But usually it's fine for regular SSH. But like I don't think GitHub supports using it for access to GitHub repos and so on. But SSH certificates are definitely worth looking at. And if you want to know how to set those up, you can check out the the textbook uh, SSH Mastery. 
if running your own certificate authority seems like too much of a pain in the butt and you need traditional keys, not certificates for, you know, one reason or another, some technology that you're integrating with, you might also consider simply making your employees access your clients through a jump host. You know, you manage one host on the cloud or in your own office that offers remote access and it has all the keys and it has the VPN tunnels that you need to get to the client sites. And so at that point, you can revoke your your ex-employee's access to the jump host and revoke the key at the jump host. Now, there is still the possibility that the employee might have scarfed off with a copy of that key. But even so, it won't be very useful to them because they don't have access to the VPN tunnels they need to to actually apply that key to the machines they were managing. And you can use an SSH agent on the jump host to have a bit more control over that key and make it so it's not just sitting on the file system somewhere. There are also fancier jump host boxes you can buy. A friend of mine makes an appliance called Fudu, so like Sudo, but with an F. And it, you know, the users will have their regular SSH key and they connect to the Fudu and then it jump hosts them to the other place, but it controls the key that actually has access to the other, the remote machines. And it can do this for SSH, but also for like HTTP and uh, MySQL and Oracle databases and all this kind of stuff. And even Windows with remote desktop. And so it has the credentials to log in as administrator on the domain controller, and none of the admins ever do. Or it also has a function where you can be like, I need the admin password for this or the root password for this machine. It'll give it to the user, but 10 minutes later, it'll change the password back to the next random one. And that way, the user doesn't actually have it long term. And the Fudu also has the feature where it can record what all your contractors do and audit their time logs. So it will actually tell you, yes, that contractor was connected to the customer machine for three hours, but for an hour of that, they didn't type anything or move the mouse. All right, the second one, remote management software. My clients have a habit of ignoring the update prompt. No way. Recently, I saw a message saying the version of Win 10 used is no longer supported. I need a way of remotely monitoring and patching Windows. As I said earlier, I do a lot of work for -for not-for-profits, and they would not find it feasible to pay for commercial RMM software. Is there a self-hosted FOSS solution to patch management in Windows and to a lesser extent, Mac? FOSS, no, but it, it, it sounds like you're asking for a Windows supplemental update server, basically. It's a free product, assuming you're actually running Windows Server in a domain. You do need Active Directory in order to uh, use WSUS, but WSUS can override your user's decisions and you know force patches to get applied and I believe you can monitor what the individual clients, like, you know, what what status they're at via the WSUS server as well. But I don't want to swear to that. If WSUS is a little bit too heavyweight for you, I, you know, I, I kind of feel a lot of your pain, I feel like, because I also am an IT business that serves a lot of small businesses. And I know how it can be difficult to implement the kind of overarching infrastructure that ties all your clients together. Like there's a big downside to that, obviously. So another option that you might consider is Bellarc Advisor. That is a free download. Now, the free version is licensed for personal use only. We all know how that goes. And it will build a detailed profile of your software, hardware, any missing security patches, antivirus status, security configurations, the whole nine. And you can just look at the results in a web browser. Most likely, the most sensible way to do that would be just to use the free download in a client or two, get your feet wet with it. And, uh, you know, then consider actually 
purchasing the real business license, you know, for real production use across the board. Uh, the obvious advantage there is that, you know, you don't need the overarching infrastructure that ties clients together because it's an installation on the individual machines that you can then monitor. So that might make it a little bit easier for you to have a standard configuration across customers without binding them together. I could picture some small offices where it's like, you know, four desktop machines and there's no domain controller where WSUS wouldn't really fit in that that kind of install. There's also a product called Landsweeper that's pretty uh, pretty popular. Now, Landsweeper is one of those, like it's a try for free and then beyond that, you know, call a sales hole. I'm not sure exactly how expensive it is, but I know it's at least affordable enough that I encounter it all the time being used by competitors in my area. So I don't think it can be too spendy. I remember using Bellarc years and years ago to like find out what the Windows serial number for a machine was to be able to reinstall it. Yeah. That part doesn't work anymore, but that used to be one of the common uses for Bell Arc Advisor. Like, I don't think Windows 10 has a serial key in the same way anymore, does it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. For the vast majority of corporate stuff, the uh, the key, the user will never see it because it's stored. It's, it's actually stored in BIOS. So like when you buy a machine that's licensed for Windows 10, there is actually a key stored in BIOS. You can actually read that sucker from Linux if you want to uh, and update it for that matter. There, there are a couple special tools for that. I had to learn about that when I was reviewing some uh, very inexpensive Chinese, uh, you know, mini PCs. And I was just not 100% convinced whether or not they were using, you know, legit Windows licenses. And so I had to figure out all that while I was investigating that before I, you know, told readers, oh, yeah, this is a good thing to get without, you know, I just didn't want to blindly tell people, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this inexpensive and you get a Windows 10 Pro license Included in the cost and, you know, then have it turn out that they were all counterfeit. Not that any Chinese vendors have ever done that in the past. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.